call it Pierce. <laughs> and I am the um, director of the events and publicity here at King. <laughs> Is that the mic? I'm too close. Okay. Sorry. Just trying my best. Um, I want to welcome you tonight to our estate planning seminar. And um, the format will be information will be given out by the participants. And then it's really up to you to ask as many questions as you would like. And we're in no hurry to get out of here, so don't rush. Um, I have to do a commercial. We are doing an event. Likely in Jamaica Kincaid. Tickets are $20 per person, $10 for students. It's at Symphony's Space on November 30th. And I'll make sure that everybody has a flyer or a little postcard before you leave. Every cent that we can get out of this will go to Sarajevo to save the writers there who are really facing almost certain death during the winter. And it's also going to be a spectacular evening. So try to come. Thank you. I'm David Groff. I'm an editor at Crown Publishers and a uh, member of the Publishing Triangle. Um, and I seem to be moderating tonight. Um, is this overwhelming, the sound? I feel like I'm in an airport. It's all right? Okay. Um, I want to thank you all for coming. Um, I hope that uh, we can make this kind of informal tonight and, uh, and informational at the same time. Um, and I want to thank Pamela Pierce as well, and Ken, and Patrick Moore, who is not here, whose place I'm taking, who put together um, a lot of what you will hear tonight. Um, we're discussing a hard topic, I think. This is not something that you know, we necessarily want to you know, discuss over Thanksgiving dinner um, in a few days. Um, but it's a, a necessary one as well, and one I think that, that writers and people in publishing tend to avoid. Um, I, just a month ago, buried a very close friend of mine who was not a writer, but who had no will, and who happened to be a gay man who died of AIDS. And his estate, his tiny little apartment and his modest little uh, estate and his few little CDs and possessions have caused us immense difficulty because he never could face even the simple facts of, of living and dying um, and what he wanted to leave behind. So we've been in constant negotiation with his parents and uh, with, with others in his life just to make sure that we get a cap or we get what he wants or that the money goes where it should go. And certainly those problems are compounded um, for any kind of writer or anyone involved in publishing who has a body of work to, uh, to preserve and to hang on to. Um, and I would venture, I for one, as a writer um, and an editor, have I'm, I'm at this point at the mercy of the state of New York, since I, for one, have no will. Um, and I think many of us are in that situation. Um, but there are steps we can take, even if we live in um, some kind of non-standard alternative family or are not exactly you know, possessed of a spouse or an amanuensis or even a, uh, a highly you know, published uh, body of work. And that's part of what you'll be hearing about tonight. You'll be hearing about the broad strokes of estate planning and some of the issues involved. And you'll be hearing, too, from um, two attorneys, some of the specifics of actually putting together um, a will and protecting your own work over time. Um, and you'll be hearing this from the various panelists whom I will introduce as we, as we go along. 
Um, and we welcome, of course, your questions. You know, when the last time I did one of these panels, the thing turned into basically lots of questions that began with, well, I have this novel, or I have this relative whom I don't trust, and, and things like that. So we are talking about something difficult, but something that is very important because we all have a stake in our work, and I'm convinced that one of the reasons that writers write um, is not simply to be loved in this, in this lifetime, but to be loved and to last for many lifetimes. Um, that I think is one of our secret, that's part of our secret agenda. And there are ways, I think, tonight in which we can uh, advance that agenda, not only for the sake of our, the preservation of our egos beyond this mortal coil, but for the, uh, the value of our work to others and, and the value of our work as an act of communication over time. The first person who will speak tonight among the five of us is George Robert Minkoff, who is a legal archivist and rare book dealer. He has a uh, offices and archive and uh, shop, I believe, in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, as well as here in New York. And he is vastly experienced in selling and cataloging of archives from small presses to that of private individuals. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd like to cover tonight a few basic questions, which may, may uh, on the surface, seem quite obvious, but they, they aren't. Once you, once you begin to look into the world of archives and the relationship to libraries, I'd like to discuss what is a library, what is an archive, and how does a, someone like myself, who's an archivist and a book dealer, uh, create a marriage between two, assuming that uh, an institution would be interested in acquiring either, an, either the entire papers of a writer or perhaps only portions of the archive. An archive is the collection of papers, manuscripts, all the various drafts of a manuscript of a novel or a poem or or, or a series of poems, uh, the letters, uh, the tapes, the videotapes, journals, and diaries of a writer. Uh, what, in my experience, that the archive can be the most significant untapped asset a writer owns. Library particular attitude about uh, about uh, archives and about their papers therein. They're interested in process. They're interested in, the, in, the, in the, the act of creation, how it went about, and the artifacts that exist uh, of that process. They're not interested generally in clean manuscripts or clean typescripts, because this really doesn't reveal the process. In some sense, that what I do uh, is to determine how much of that process exists. I'm a literary agent in a sense, but I don't deal with the finished novel. I deal with the novel before it is completed, or the act of its completion, or the writer's life as it bears on this, this paper, this, his work. A, museum, a, a library, in some sense, is not a museum. It is not interested, essentially, in artifacts. It is interested in the research library that we were talking about, would have, which would collect uh, a, a writer's uh, papers would be interested in, in how these papers reveal process. So, uh, and they also are very particular about what they collect. Because remember, a library has to, uh, has to maintain, has to preserve papers for uh, basically forever. So they, for them to acquire something, either through a gift or through purchase, it means that even the, the amount of money or uh, even if they get the papers uh, for nothing, it's going to take a great deal of uh, financial capital to maintain these papers. So they're very, very particular about what they acquire, even, though, even as a gift. 
Now, what makes, a pa what makes an archive valuable? It's not necessary to have a significant literary career. You do not have to be a household name. But, but if you, uh, some writers' archives are significant uh, because of where they work. Uh, American literature is very regional literature. So writers who were born in Georgia or California, if they, even if they had a, an interesting career, the, 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 uh, it is possible that their papers would have, have some value to, to, to certain institutions. Also, where they work. For example, I, I'm particularly interested in, in writers who wrote for the movies or for early radio or for early, early television. This is a significant, to me, this is a significant artifact of the, uh, the creation of American popular culture. And there are a number of institutions that would be interested in such, in, in such uh, archives. Uh, libraries have, have their own pri priorities. Uh, I just want to say also, presses, private presses also have significant, uh, can have, uh, their papers can have significant value, uh, not only for the people they publish, for the, uh, for the particular kind of art and design of their books, uh, for the places in which they published, Editors files uh, are the same kind of uh, same kind of reasons. Uh, the, pay, uh, the significance of the of the writers that the editor worked with, uh, etc. Libraries have their own priorities, which means that even if uh, libraries collect 20th century, 19th century, just about any kind of literature or any kind of uh, subject imaginable, and it is and they do, and generally libraries will not buy will only acquire papers. That are that will build on strength. They will not. They will not uh, acquire papers which, are, even if they're quite significant, even if they feel it does not uh, enhance or uh, or augment an, an established collection, especially today where funds and space are very very are, are very precious. Uh, many libraries today have uh, have auxiliary uh, buildings, sometimes out of town sometimes in, uh, in the country where they house material that is uh, not used quite often. So for them to, to acquire a large batch of papers or a significant uh, group of books, uh, it means that they really have to feel that it has some significance. I also want to talk just very quickly about nonfiction writers. That nonfiction writers archives also can have a certain amount of interest. Sometimes uh, for the collection of research books that are in part of this, part of an archive, sometimes for their own manuscripts, sometimes for, for, for both reasons. So there, is, uh, a, 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 so there are many reasons why an institution might be interested in acquiring papers. Uh, and even in, a, in an archive which is not in, uh, interested in its entirety, there can be significant portions, perhaps correspondence or particular manuscripts, where would be, which would be interested, interested to, a, uh, to a library. George, um, a Soto Saint could not make it tonight, um, which is unfortunate for a lot of reasons, partly because I, I wanted to sort of do a little dog and pony show with him about Safe House, which is what I will discuss next. You know, I hope that will help set the stage for some of the other issues, just as uh, George has. Um, Safe House, excuse me? <coughs> Safe House, yes, um, is a program, a, a just budding program of the Publishing Triangle. Which is the uh, which is an organization of lesbian and gay people in publishing, writers, editors, booksellers, agents, um, readers, um, 
And but the program the program has basically been put together to meet a very specific need, which is that of of lesbians and gay men who are facing AIDS and facing the issues of HIV. There are a number of writers who uh, who are gay who um, suddenly realize at a, at a serious moment that they have produced some work which may or may not have been published or made them a success in their lifetimes and have no one to lead that work to except that, that awful relative who may not even be, uh, may not even know this person's gay or may not even know about the work itself um, or may you know, take great pleasure in destroying that work. Um, all of us, if all of us who are without wills were to drop dead this minute, our ne nearest and dearest blood relative would be our, uh, um, our heir. Um, and that, for some of us, is a rather scary idea, especially the week before Thanksgiving. Um, and Safe House... Large. <laughs> <laughs> Safe House has been put together to, to sort of to deal with this and to create, in a sense, an archive as well. Um, it is based on a program um, put together by Patrick Moore in his job at the Alliance for the Arts. He's put together something called the Estates Project for the Arts, which deals with visual, visual artists. And Safe House deals with um, writers facing AIDS and other life-threatening illnesses who um, are generally lesbian or gay, but don't have to be. Um, and basically what Safe House will do is to preserve your work. It will not publish it, but it will preserve it, and it will provide access to publishers. So if you were to realize, if you said, well, I published you know, five novels in the spirit of P.G. Woodhouse, and they've not been published, but I don't want them to, to die with me, you can, before your death, catalog them for us, along with any other accompanying papers, give us a list of what they are, box them, and give them to us. At which point, we will do our best to catalog them further and put them in the custody of uh, the City University of New York, which is where our uh, where Safe House is, is currently housed with CLAGS, the Committee on Lesbian and Gay Studies there. Now, you'll be giving us not only your uh, papers, but your uh, copyrights, so that um, we have entire legal control over your work after your death. Um, now, that, this throws a lot of people, because they might well want, you know, they may not want their great aunt to have physical access to those papers, but wouldn't it be nice if her, you know, two-year-old nephew ultimately could benefit from any money that your, your, your work might uh, generate. Well, that we can't do. We're just not equipped for that, and we do ask for copyrights. But it is conceivable that, um, and I'm sure we'll hear more about this from Joe Nessel later on, that, um, your work, that your work will be of interest to publishers, and it will absolutely be of interest to archives uh, arch and archivists in the future, and your work will be absolutely uh, preserved for that. Um, any money that your work would generate would go be plowed back into the Safe House program. Um, which does provide, which is a way of setting up an alternative legal system, an alternative preservation system for writers who are you know, highly qualified, who are highly accomplished already, and who are, uh, and those writers who are also threatened with, with death, but who are uh, you know, not as accomplished yet. Um, the program is really, it's all in place to go, and we have a number of volunteers. What we, uh, what we really need is to get the word out, because we do feel we're offering a real, a real service. Uh, for a lot of writers, including people like a Soto Saint, who are quite well known, but do need somebody to sort of hang on for them. And unfortunately, many of us um, have lost our executors, who might have been our lovers, who might have been our literary executors. I am the literary executor for a well-known gay writer um, who really didn't feel that there was anyone in his life left to clo as that close to him, um, and instead went to someone who, like me who wasn't publishing to help preserve his work. 
along with, in this case, his agent and, uh, and one other close friend. So um, as lesbian and gay people create alternative families, they also have to create alternative systems to preserve those families and to preserve the creations they've made. There are many ways to do this, and you'll hear about others of them tonight. Safe House is certainly one, and I hope you'll contact me <coughs> about that or about the Publishing Triangle, which is a, uh, a, good, a very good organization. I'll put in my commercial for that. Um, we were doing a, uh, everything from a holiday party right through to sponsoring a library at the Lesbian and Gay Community Services Center, a lending library, which ultimately I think will be hooked up in certain ways to Safe House. And um, I think we can do a lot for our community, um, lesbian and gay people in general, and writers and uh, other people in publishing, specifically in our lifetimes and, and afterward. Um, we can create new ways for this brand new gay culture to, uh, to endure even in difficult personal and, uh, and social times for us. Um, that is what I have to say on this. Soto is not here. I, next, I think we're hearing from Daniel Mayer, who is the Executive Director of Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. Thank you. Um, on one level, we all know someone who has died of AIDS, but on a, a more base or personal level, one thing that everyone in this room shares today is mortality. And in addition to that mortality, we all share a desire to be remembered. Uh, generally, we think of wanting to be remembered by the deeds that we perform. But as artists, there's another obligation. There's the uh, desire or wanting to be remembered by the creative works that you, uh, that, you cr that you create during your lifetime. And because of that desire to protect your creative works, there was something created several years ago a project that was started called the Estate Project for Artists with AIDS. This was started by the Alliance for the Arts, a uh, public service organization that works specifically on special projects for the arts community. They recognized a need to help artists see this issue and uh, created a public education program. Uh, the outgrowth of this project was the book that is distributed at the back of the room uh, by the elevator the one with a little hand on it. What this was, it was an attempt to raise awareness on the issues of artists with AIDS and the need for estate planning for artists with AIDS. Uh, this project has sort of entered into its second phase. The first phase was one of public education and raising awareness on this issue. And that's partially what's going on here tonight. Another part of the second phase, however, is if you are becoming more aware of this issue, where do you go for assistance? Because estate planning is a very personal, individual issue. It's something that's difficult to do in a group. Everyone has different uh, problems and different uh, circumstances that requires one-on-one uh, -on -one counseling. For that kind of uh, reason, the uh, Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts partnered with the Alliance for the Arts on this issue. Uh, Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, of which I'm the executive director, is a not-for-profit organization which provides free legal assistance to artists and arts organizations. We were founded 24 years ago because it was realized that here was a group of incredibly talented people who were often denied justice and access to legal counsel because of, of economic circumstance. Yet, yet because of their contribution to society, we wanted to make sure that they got access to legal uh, counseling and got problems solved, which allowed them to work as artists. We undertook the estate project 
because this fit in with our mission. It fit in with our desire to preserve art and to help artists. The estate project uh, has meant uh, that our volunteer attorneys have worked with both artists and trustees and legatees to talk about uh, issues of estate planning and how we can help preserve art that, uh, that is being created now or will be created in the future. But also what we've discovered is that uh, estate planning is more than just your creative soul. It's a question of body and soul. And we begin to look at the full range of issues that artists with AIDS have and looking at dealing with the artist with AIDS or a terminally ill artist from a various different perspectives. So there are a wide range of issues that someone who's terminally ill faces, not just estate planning. So we began to try and develop ways of working with artists on all these different topics. Uh, after I finish these few open, opening remarks, I'll be followed by Arlen Applebaum, who's a staff attorney at VLA, who will speak about specific legal issues and the range of topics that you may face now or at a very future point. Uh, state planning is a very individual topic, one that requires that you reflect on uh, both the program tonight and your own particular circumstances. Uh, so although we may not be able to answer all your questions tonight, and, and indeed probably you won't even begin to think about uh, all the questions and issues tonight, I hope that you will take some information, give this some thought, and remember that Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, as well as the other organizations mentioned here tonight, all are there as resources to help you with your individual issues. So with that sort of introduction or framework, uh, turn it over to Arlen to speak about some specific uh, points of consideration. Thank you. Um, I guess I just want to start off by saying that the earlier you start uh, your estate planning, the better off you'll be. As Dan mentioned, it is uh, a process that really requires a lot of reflection on your own part. Um, I'll be talking about the basics of what you need to do to plan for the future care of yourself and your works. And uh, on that note, I'm going to talk about uh, health care proxies and living wills uh, kind of as a supplement to estate planning first. A living will is a document that sets out your instructions as to how you want to be treated in the event you do not have the mental or physical ability to communicate your wishes to your health care providers. Uh, situations where you might need a uh, living will would be where you are permanently unconscious, where you've had a substantial and irreversible loss of mental functions, or where you have a uh, condition that's likely to cause your death within a short period of time, whether or not medical procedures are administered. Uh, some of the, the uh, kinds of procedures that are withheld during these times uh, could be uh, mechanical respiratory support, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, um, artificially administered nutrition and artificially administered hydration, surgery, um, you can also designate in your living will whether or not you want experimental treatments performed. Um, the, a living will is actually a very simple document to fill out. It does require a lot of reflection, but it only needs to be signed in front of two witnesses and it doesn't need to be notarized. Similar to a living will but different is a healthcare proxy. This is a document which allows you to appoint someone to make healthcare decisions for you. Uh, this should be someone who understands your wishes about how you want to be treated, who 
who lives near you, so they'll be available uh, when uh, this unfortunate situation arises, and someone who will be able to act appropriately in a time of high emotion, who can think clearly under pressure. Uh, you should also indicate an alternate healthcare agent in the event that the person you choose is not available. Um, it's, you should, it's important to note that a healthcare agent cannot remove artificial hydration or nutrition unless you indicate by clear and convincing evidence that they can do so. Uh, courts in New York have held that this clear and convincing evidence must be in writing in order to withdraw food and water from you. Um, it's possible and advisable to sign a combined medical directive, a living will, and healthcare proxy. I personally think that this is the uh, best way to handle the situation because you, you really appoint someone you know and you're giving them directions as to how to care for you. It takes some of the burden off of their decisions uh, at that highly emotional time. Uh, I think it's a good idea to have a, some kind of living will, whether you're ill or not. Um, unless you're clairvoyant, you really know, never know when some kind of incapacitating event can happen to you. The next uh, instrument I want to talk about is a durable power of attorney. Um, this is something that should be prepared ahead of time uh, while you still have all your mental capability with you. This power of attorney allows someone to act on your behalf as if he or she were you. Uh, she can execute contracts, take care of banking matters, and all of your business needs with this power of attorney. You can limit the areas in which this person may act on your behalf as well. You can just say, well, you're just going to take care of paying my rent or making sure my checks get deposited. Um, it's important to have this if you will be unable to pay your, pay your bills or cash your checks. Um, this power of attorney, however, does not grant the person the right to make health care decisions for you. So the power of attorney and the health care proxy do not overlap. Um, obviously, it's important in this situation as well to make sure that you trust the person and that they are capable of carrying out these business duties for you. And I want to emphasize that you should make sure you get a durable power of attorney. A durable power of attorney will not be affected by any subsequent disability or incompetence you may uh, endure. Now I'm going to get into the meat and potatoes of our discussion, um, estates. Well, what is an estate? It's simply everything that you own at the time of your death, uh, including your works and your copyrights. Everyone has an estate, but only those who have adequately planned are assured of controlling their estate after their death. Artists who have already been diagnosed with AIDS and HIV should carry out their estate planning as soon as possible when you have the full mental capacity, strength, and time to do so. Uh, the goal of the writer should be to focus on creating a safe repository for your works. To this end, you should really do enough research so that you can make an informed decision as to who or which institutions will be capable of preserving your works, and more importantly, those that will be willing to accept your work. Uh, there are a number of organizations, including Penn and the Publishing Triangle, which can direct you <coughs> to those archives accepting works from artists with AIDS. Um, wills are more formally a last will and testament to differentiate it from a living will is a, a document that indicates in writing how you wish your assets to be distributed after your death. 
you can transfer copyrights in your works through your will, um, and as well as disposing of all your other property through your will. A will takes effect only at your death and disposes only to the property you own at that time. You can revoke or change your will any time prior to your death. The will can provide instructions with respect to the disposition and administration of your estate. You can pick one or more people to be the executors of your estate. Uh, you could direct that a trust be created to administer certain property for the benefit of one or more uh, people for a certain period of time after your, the artist's death. The will can also direct that a foundation be created to receive part or all of the estate and to carry out your charitable wishes. Um, a will must be properly executed to have legal effect. Legal, uh, wills are governed by state law, and under New York state law, the will must be in writing, except in limited circumstances, and the signing of the will must be witnessed by at least two people. The uh, testator must be 18 years of age or older. The requirements for proper execution of a will must be fulfilled in order to survive any challenge to the validity of the will. This becomes very important when you are gay or lesbian and want to leave everything or a substantial amount of your estate to your lover and you have to deal with a uh, potential challenge to the will from your lover's family. So you really want to pay attention to proper uh, methods of execution under New York State law. You must have legal capacity to make a will which means that you must be capable of understanding the effect of the will. This means knowing the extent of your assets and to whom you're giving those assets. For this reason, it is very important to sign your will before any loss of mental functions. Otherwise, you may, provi you may be providing a way to challenge the validity of your will. Additionally, the signing of the will cannot be made under what's called undue influence. This means that you are not influence to dispose of your property in a manner that does not represent your true wishes. Um, for example, there is a presumption of undue influence if a beneficiary under the will is present at the signing of the will. So make sure your lover or spouse doesn't go with you to the lawyer's office when you sign the will if you intend to leave them anything. But not all property needs to be disposed of by a will. Um, with careful planning, you can arrange it so that certain property passes to another individual whether or not there is a will. Uh, you won't have to wait for probate court proceedings for the assets to be distributed. Um, there are a number of ways to do this. Uh, the most common way is uh, where you have property that's held jointly with a right of survivorship. This property passes automatically to the co-owner at the death of the other co-owner. Examples are joint bank accounts with the right of survivorship, real estate or shares in a co-op held jointly with the right of survivorship, life insurance, pension, and death benefits that are uh, payable directly to a beneficiary other than the estate. So if you have a bank account in uh, both your name and your lover's name with the right of survivorship, upon the death of one of you, the funds in the account automatically pass to the survivor. Another way to, uh, to protect your property and to uh, distribute your assets without a will is through an inter, what's called an inter vivos revocable trust. I'll say that again, an inter vivos revocable trust. A, a trust is a fiduciary relationship in which a trustee holds legal title to specific property 
and manages it for the benefit of named beneficiaries. A trust created while you, uh, <coughs> and uh, an inter vivos revocable trust is a trust that's created while you are alive and which can be revoked or changed at any time prior to your death. Uh, as creator of the trust, you can act as a trustee and be the sole beneficiary of the trust until your death, at which time the assets are disposed of pursuant to directions in the trust. The advantages of this is that it avoids probate. It, by that I mean going to probate court. It avoids the expense of going to probate court, the delay in time of distribution of the assets or the uh, income from those assets, and it also maintains your privacy. Uh, when you go to probate court, a will becomes a public document once it's filed. With the trust, it does not become a public document. It remains private. The disadvantages to setting up an inter vivos trust are that it, there's a cost in time to set up the trust, and there are administration costs which start from the day of the creation of the uh, trust. Also, there are no tax advantages or benefits because the trust is revocable. You could set up an artistic property trust. This is another kind of trust. Um, it could actually be a subtype of the uh, inter vivos revocable trust. And uh, this is where you put artistic works as the body of the trust. Um, that's how you set it up. The reasons to do this is that it may be desirable to keep your works together as a whole so you don't inhibit the effective marketing of the works. Uh, particularly for writers, the value of the work lies in the future exploitation of the copyright interests in the work, and it just it, it might help the trustee a lot to have all of your works together. Uh, another reason for setting up this trust is that you can carefully choose who will manage your works and be best able to market your works. Uh, the trust can provide for a payment of net proceeds generated by the works to named beneficiary beneficiaries until the trust terminates. This kind of trust can be created under a will or the trust can be established while you are alive. Another way to distribute your works without a will is by making lifetime gifts. That's simply making gifts while you are alive. Uh, the advantages to doing this are that you know that your works are in the hands of those you want them to be in. And uh, generally, these gifts will not be included in your estate at death and therefore not, a su not subject to estate taxes. Uh, any income earned by the work is taxable to the person receiving the gift rather than the donor. Uh, there's an, uh, I have a note of caution here on that, though, is that you have to make sure that the income generated by the artistic work is taxable to the person who received the gift. Uh, monies generated by copyrights due to contracts previously entered into by the writer uh, may still be taxable to the writer because they're looking at it added as money coming from the contract rather than from the exploitation of the copyright. Um, it's better to transfer the copyright prior to entering in, into any contracts in, to avoid this possibility. The disadvantages to lifetime gifts are that the gifts are irrevocable and you will lose control over the works and the ability to sell or use them. <coughs> you can give away your work without having any tax consequences if it has a total fair market value uh, up to $10,000 or up to $20,000 if you are married and your spouse joins in making a gift. However, uh, a lifetime gift may reduce the amount you can leave tax-free upon your death. <coughs> also something to keep in mind is that if you donate a work that you created to charity, 
you will be entitled to uh, charitable deductions for income tax purposes, but only for the value of the cost of your materials and not the full fair market value of the work. Um, I've really simplified things here for this discussion. I've just talked about a few of the many issues that come up in estate planning. This area of the law is very complicated and you should have an attorney help you prepare an estate plan. Um, once more, I'll reiterate that VLA is here to help artists in this time of need. Thanks, Arlen. Um, last to speak formally before your questions is Joan Nessel, who is the co-founder of the Lesbian History Archives. Yes, I'm here sort of, I guess now I realize in two ways, as a writer and as um, a co-founder of a grassroots archives. And I think I, my role is going to be to pull us back a little bit and look at the philosophy and some of the other uh, points that co could go into making your choices that have nothing to do with money um, but have to do with how you see your legacies working out in a political and cultural life of a community. I wanted to begin with a poem. Um, this is a poem by Angelina Grimke, who is an African-American lesbian poet writing during the Harlem Renaissance. The days fall upon me. One by one they fall, like leaves. They are black. They are gray. They are white. They are shot through with gold and fire. They fall. They fall ceaselessly. They cover me. They crush. They smother. Who will ever find me under the days? It's out of recognitions like that and passions for touch through time, which is how I see the archives, that the Lesbian History Archives came into being. And I don't know how many of you know about it. Could I just see a show? How many of you have never heard of it? Or could you just raise your hand? That's all right. You've never heard of it. I'll just tell you quickly. But I realize that I'm, I want to make this as general. I want to speak about the archives as a particular example of a grassroots community setting up its own place for memory. And though I'm speaking about the Lesbian History Archives, there are many community archives springing up in this city as different communities from different cultural backgrounds realize that they don't want to turn their memories over to institutions that in many cases have ruled them out of memory. So, you, I mean, there really is a politics to all of this as well as an economics. Um, we started in 1973, a group of us, uh, we're a not-for-profit organization. It, the archives grew in my West Side apartment, much like the Schomburg collection, you know, until it got too big. And two years ago, in a time of depression in this country, literally hundreds of thousands of supporters, men, women, um, in this country and around the world, helped us raise money to buy a brownstone in Brooklyn. So the Lesbian Hurstry Archives has its own building. We're the largest collection of this kind in the world. We have over a thousand visitors a year who come to use it. Now, what is, some things I want to raise. There will be many, well, the first thing is, we're an archives that is not really concerned with, quote, the fame, the public fame of the donor. We are concerned with missing voices in social history. And that's something for you to consider. There are many archives, there are oral history projects, there are community archives where your testimony to, for instance, living in New York City from 1960 to 1980 is a very necessary part of the story. So just to see yourselves in other ways of, of being important. Um, 
the other thing, different from what Dave was talking about, is that we don't hold copyright. We very much see, uh, at this point, we see ourselves as a kind of middle person. When artists and writers, we have an artist slide registry, we have original works, and we have many, many manuscripts, um, and as you said, archival works in process. And we also have many writers sharing their works with us who are looking for readers. And so, for instance, if a publisher or an agent comes to the archives and reads through a manuscript collection, we put them in touch with the writer, and it goes on, or the photographer, or the painter, and it goes on from there. Some um, philosophical points. All archives are not the same in the sense they have different philosophies about inclusion. And again, I'll speak from a lesbian point of view, but I think this is true in a larger point of view. There are class and cultural and even style things. For instance, we're in inclusive archives. We collect everything any lesbian gives us. We don't decide, okay, leather women, we don't want your words. And now, I'm being very specific, but th there are archives who, for instance, are interested in the elite of a profession. I suggest to you that's a political choice when you underwrite that kind of view of um, how culture is formed. We also have worked out things when Audrey Lord, um, early on as a sign of support, gave us a huge collection of first edition works, of photographs, of manuscripts in process. Towards the end of her life, she also gave a large collection to a university of her choice. But what she insisted was that they make a duplicate of that collection for us. So what I'm saying is, you can sort of have it both ways. You can support a community archives, which for some may appear more risk-taking because many of us don't have marble halls yet. You know, uh, We're not connected institutions, which I would suggest has its own dangers because institution, institutional bureaucracies change, the politics of an institution changes, the politics of access can change. Um, so I'm a passionate believer in community-controlled archival sources and, and libraries, for that matter. But what I'm saying is you can make, uh, as part of the stipulation of your estate, that works be duplicated for other collections. And I, I want to say a word about uh, giving that wills are not often uh, safety enough for a, stig a stigmatized community. And there's a story we tell, the Marge McDonald story, which is in our newsletter. Marge McDonald was a lesbian woman in her 50s who around 10 years ago had heard of us, and I'll try to make this short. It's a, it's a compelling story. But um, we went up to visit her in Syracuse. We have a, tra a traveling slideshow. We gave her a one-woman showing of the slideshow, and she had a house, a huge house in Syracuse, New York, filled with women-identified women, books and uh, objects, including first edition Gertrude Stein's, things she could have gotten huge amounts of money for. And um, she eventually willed all of this to us, including her unpublished manuscripts. But a will was not enough. We got a call from the lawyer on the right the day after she died that her family, her father in particular, was in the process of burning her diaries. I really make a passionate plea. Don't, don't leave it all to wills. And I know lawyers, I, I know there's a whole you know, mechanism to enact that. But I say, and I'll say this particularly to gay and lesbian writers, do it while you are alive. Do it, um, don't trust the institutions to protect you because the passions and the stigma is too great. So that is something we have learned. Uh, let's see. Maybe I'm 
going on. I guess what I want to say is that to have trust in grassroots and community archives, to search out an archives or a place to give your papers to that will speak to a population that you wanted to speak to in, in life. And what I mean by that, for instance, we have no rules of access to our collection. The only rule we have, or the only part of the collection that isn't available is the confidential collection. We could talk about that. But that means you don't need a special letter to use the Lesbian Herstory Archives. You don't need to be a graduate student at Harvard to use the Lesbian Herstory Archives. These are political things to take into account. How open will your collection be? So I think on that note, I will stop. <laughs> um, we're open for questions now to any panelists. I will field them. Yeah. You probably can answer this, speak to the specifics. Frank Bedart, the poet who is uh, executive for Robert Lowell's estate, says it's a full-time job. And I really think, very simply, it depends on the estate. You know, if it's, if it's a big deal, it can be like managing an entire career, I think. But I'm sure Arlen has specifics. No, I agree with that, unless you leave very specific directions to the literary executors that uh, their job is just to make sure the works get read rather than exploiting it commercially. Um, and that's hardly ever done, then uh, I think that the literary executive's job is a big one. You know, it is to get that book published and to get it out there and to continue to have it printed. You mean before you die? Or yeah. at Well, before, when you're setting up your will, you should go through and catalog everything at that time anyway. Uh, you, you really, that's part of setting up a will is figuring out what you have. That's knowing the extent of what you own and then figuring out where it's going to go. Um, so you should have something set up at that point. But yeah, it, it is helpful to have the literary executor come in afterwards and go through everything. I am a literary executor for a writer, but and I think it does what it, um, Sunny Wainwright, her name was, is. And my main responsibility, now she's not, quote, a major writer, so I could see, but is when people want to use anything, whether published or unpublished, they write to me, and I have the power to say yes or no. And what I use is my um, criteria is what, what my best interpretation of Sonny's desire for how she wanted her writing to live in the world. And up to this point, I've never said no, and, I've, and there's never a fee. Um, no, no. What I know, these are, um, and this may, but in this case, it's for quotations from her work to be used, it's for reprints of her stories. You know, I never, I must say, quite honestly, until I sat on this panel, I never realized that there's an income to be made off these things which um, I think raises interesting questions. But I certainly can see it how we could support like a not-for-profit. Like I'm a writer and I'm going to leave all my works to the archives, including the copyright. So whatever royalties I get would go to that institution. But I'm saying I wouldn't be scared off 
from being an executor, and I don't think you should be frightened to ask someone to be an executor. It's a really quite wonderful relationship in some ways. Can I make a quick point though before, just also because I think it also raises the relationship between you, the relationship you set up with your trustee, um, that you that you can create certain expectations, and that if you do have certain expectations, you should make those as explicit as possible. Um, so it's not only left to them to sort of uh, think what you would have wanted in terms of exploitation and marketing and publicity and uh, and uh, availability of your work but you should make that as explicit as possible so that the, A, the person knows what they're getting into, but B, that you, know, that you know, are able to have a conversation and know you're selecting the right person who uh, has a kinship for what you want your works to be done with. Is the literary executor generally paid out of the estate the way the regular executor is? Is there any sort of general provision for that at all? It can be, but it can also be waived. And I was interested in the artistic property trust aspect of uh, what you said. Um, I think it behooves a visual artist to have several people rather than just one. I mean, it's a massive job <laughs> because there are objects involved. And so I wanted to know what you thought on, on, on that. This is painting and sculpture. Sure, I mean, you can always have more than one trustee. And I, if you think it's a good idea to do that, if someone has expertise in one area but lacking in another, it's definitely a good idea to pull someone in to help the other trustee. The other, the other real issue with visual art is that it's not an issue with writers, um, and sort of thankfully it's one less thing to have to worry about as a writer, is um, finding someone to accept the work for archive or storage. Uh, currently there is no large institution which on a wholesale basis accepts artists' works uh, uh, generally for storage or archive, archival purposes. There's no one institution that has enough storage space to take all the works of, every of everyone who wants to donate their work to be preserved or cataloged or, or, or utilized or marketed in some way. Um, there just is no institution that wants to take this on. Uh, and that's one thing that the estate project uh, from the Alliance for the Arts is working on, is trying to convince more and more institutions to do that on a selective basis for specific types of visual artists. So. In addition to your question, uh, one reason why you may want different trustees for different purposes is you may want to split your visual arts work into with different people and with different institutions for that reason that it's very, there's very few institutions which are willing to take the entire body of your work. Um, so there are storage and archive question issues which are different with visual artists. Um, there's an interesting project in Massachusetts which is trying to create computer records 
because computer records of everyone's art would be easier in a visual art case to store than the actual works themselves. So it's, it's interesting, the different issues that are raised with visual arts that are never occur to writers are not as much of an issue with writers. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I said I could still stand up, I think uh, it's important to know that some of us have reached an age where we will die of the normal diseases of stroke, heart attack, and cancer. And I felt that the panel was so almost exclusively devoted to the unfortunate uh, death of younger people by uh, AIDS. But I was wondering, uh, my question is, um, can you have more than one literary executor? Uh, I, I you you spoke of being one of th uh, I'm one of three. Yeah, ah. with, the, uh, with the author's agent, and I insisted, in fact, that there be two others. Oh, I see. So you can have more than yeah. I think one. I think we're sort of I don't know quite how it will ultimately work. The writer is fortunately still alive, but yeah, um, I think we'll either be taking various aspects of this writer's work. Well, and, and dealing with them individually, or will serve as a as a committee to spread it out. Another question: uh, d uh, Given the hard work of the literary executor, do, do, and after all, as you put it, it's the de desire to have your work uh, outlive you. Uh, and since the, if he's well disposed to your work, and you hope you've chosen one or two who are, uh, shouldn't there be an endowment from the estate? Of, of this executor uh, so that his costs or even uh, giving him the copyright uh, and uh, further things like that. In other words, uh, any expenses or even the reward for uh, being the literary executor, should there not be whatever your better other beneficiaries are, he's as a, uh, should he not be the executor of the whole estate, should he not, uh, should an allotment not be made for the literary executor or is that too much like a bribe? I mean, since it's an altruistic work being literary oh, executor. No, not at all. And a literary executor can uh, have expenses paid, you know, for administering the estate, and uh, that's perfectly legal. No problem with that. Can you, for example, I have no uh, family, and uh, could I, is there a way that a writer, of course now I know about safe house things I didn't know about before, uh, and I'm thinking of a literary executor, but is there way, a way a writer can somehow uh, let it be known that the copyright, uh, what is, that his work is in public domain not 50 years after he died, but immediately upon his death? Well, you've relinquished the copyright? Well, I've relinquished life. I can relinquish. No, in other words, <laughs> Cop well, copyrights are much harder society. to relinquish than life. <laughs> you really right. don't. So it's not a good thing to do to try to, to uh, do. You don't that. really need to relinquish your copyright because if you allow your work to be used freely, uh, then you just get, allow your work to be used anytime anyone requests permission. So you don't need to relinquish your copyright in that sense. Uh, it, it, it might all amount to the same thing. Uh, there's not, it's very difficult to sort of relinquish your copyright, but you can let anyone use your work very freely, and in essence, you're doing the same thing. I'd like to add just one thing um, to what was said. Um, we have talked a lot today about, um, about AIDS, certainly, and about the unfortunate deaths of young people. Um, gay and lesbian people certainly die of AIDS. They certainly die of, lesbians certainly die of breast cancer in, in greater numbers than the general population of women. 
And at the very least, I would say to you, those of you who are not gay or lesbian, that you, what you are dealing with here is a representation or a metaphor for what is in fact everyone's issues. Um, lesbian and gay people, because they tend to be uh, out of the mainstream and often um, and have very little legal protection, um, are, are dealing with the issues that everyone who is not a standard family man or family woman has to deal with. So I hope at the very least that the issues that you may have been presented to you in terms of, of how they affect lesbian and gay people who are younger can be seen for you as metaphors, if you will, for, for your own issues, no matter what your age or your sexuality or your, uh, the construction of your family. Can I just make one additional point? Because, it, again, it's hard for us to answer the, your, some of your questions because it varies so much state to state. Because what, uh, one thing that immediately comes to mind is what percentage of your state or the value of your state is your literary work? Uh, if someone came to us who had a million dollars in assets and their literary work, their question of how to deal with that, 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 those other assets other than their intellectual property would be very different than the person who comes to us with a car, $10, you know, $10 in the bank, and their literary work in terms of uh, compensating the uh, executor and making disposition for all their property. So it can really vary from a state to a state greatly in terms of how you, what, what structures you set up to compensate people or to deal with your copyrights on a, on a very individual basis based on the size and the particular nature of your individual estate. Yeah. Um, that sort of addresses what I was going to ask, which is uh, I'm not in imminent um, you know, fear of, of I'm not ill with a uh, serious disease or anything, but I do need to set up a will. And can I come to you also with these questions if I'm not suffering from a terminal illness, or how does that how does that work? Uh, yes, you can. Uh, <laughs> we have what we have is we, uh, the w way you find out more about volunteer lawyers for the arts is we have an art law line which is a hotline which is manned by staff attorneys and law students from Columbia Law School. And if we can answer a quick question over the phone, we'll be glad to do so. Uh, we then have a legal service program where we provide one-on-one -on -one counseling. Normally, that is income sensitive for free legal services. We're there to provide legal services for those who can't afford legal services. But in the area of estate planning, we look at our guidelines as liberally as possible so that we can help a wide range of people because we realize that there are a lot of people who eventually do have a, such expense that they can't uh, afford an attorney in this area. Well, I think also the, thing, the things that you've been talking about which are interesting to me is that you know, this a knowledge of the arts, you know, that I'm a lesbian, you know, there's certain issues that I think it's rare to have a lawyer that, in, in my experience, who understands that particular group of issues. So that was what was well, appealing to me. We, that's the whole mission of VLA is if you come to me and say, I want VLA to help me with a divorce, we don't help you. Right. It's only for arts-related legal problems. Right. So the reason we're involved in estate planning is because you're not worried about your car, you're worried about your writings and your car and everything. So we really look at it as an arts-related legal problem, which is why we're involved with it and why it fits in with our mission of copyrights and contracts. So it's got to be, uh, that's, the, that's the tack we take on it, is arts-related. Uh, let me just give you the number for those of you who don't pick up the little brochure. Uh, in the back, it's 319-2910, and that's staffed every day from 9.30 to 4.30. 2910. And that way you can find out more about our services. 
And is there, is there any book on this subject that you'd recommend that's relevant that would be helpful? Or the little book with the hand gives a no, fair no, amount I know, of but information. I mean, the little oh, beyond book with that, uh, there's a longer book that the Alliance for the Arts did that also has a hand on it that has a chapter <laughs> of legal information. Uh, we have some copies in our office that we'll be glad to send you, or you can pick up, or you can call the Alliance for the Arts and they can send you one. There was a man in the back who had his hand up for a while. Can we reach him? Or can we? I was wondering if uh, all the problems of, say, an appraisal of your writings, um, the appointment of a literary executor, et cetera, could be um, taken care of if you can get a literary archive to accept your work. George, why don't you deal with that? Uh, let's see. Generally, uh, institutions don't appraise works because they feel it's a conflict of interest. Uh, they feel that they will arrange it, but they do not have on staff someone who can appraise because they feel if they're going to accept it, if they accept it as a gift, there are IRA, uh, IRS forms they have to fill out. And that, so there has to be a non, uh, a, a disinterested party to do the appraisal. If it's a purchase, they feel it's a conflict of interest. They can't appraise it and buy it at the same time. So therefore, they usually call in someone else. Uh, they usually have a list of people uh, that they use from time, you know, that they use from time to time for these services. Uh, will, the, will the institution act as executive? That can be done. That can be done, but they will not do the appraisal. For example, I think it's public knowledge that Yale University, for example, is the uh, literary executor of Eugene O'Neill's uh, papers. They own the copyrights and they carry out, uh, they carry out the function of a literary executor. So it, is, it, it has been done. I'd like to know if there is such a thing as a group foundation, not, not connected with any sexual orientation uh, or political orientation, uh, simply a group foundation to which or through which you can either find a literary executor or would the foundation serve as literary executor for a number of writers? Is there such a thing? I don't know, but I can't speak for, I mean, as to my knowledge there isn't, but I think um, the other people could answer better than myself. Uh, I'm just looking quickly at this list um, in this book, which is the same as the list in the small book, which talks about a, uh, or resources or organizations which um, uh, you can contact to ask that question. Because I think, don't think there's uh, any organization that takes every uh, manuscript that's ever offered to them, but I think there are a wide range of, of 
archive opportunities for you. I, I just see this list here of colleges and universities and other literary organizations where you can ask that question and, and get an answer to uh, get an answer that may, uh, may deal specifically with your type of writing or your uh, genre of writing regardless of uh, other factors. Just, you know, there's things like you might not have thought about. For instance, if you have gone to college, there are colleges that have archives that would, would like the collections of an alumni. I mean, there's all kinds of interconnections between periods in your life and archives, and you don't really, are, you're not really conscious of that until you start looking around, so. Um, uh, there are regional archives, they have a New York City archive. Well, I'm sure there's the New York State Historical Society. I mean, there is a huge number of various archives. I just have to say, the Lesbian History Archives is the one place that accepts everything given to us. It might be hard for you, but it could happen. <laughs> This lady and then the, the uh, man in the white shirt. Thank you. Um, I'd like to make a, I'd like to ask a question and, and make a comment. If I could make the comment first. Joan, I'm well aware of your monumental achievement and I'm a great admirer of it. <laughs> but you said one thing yes. uh -oh. that I think might be a little <laughs> disingenuous, yeah. which was your comment about <laughs> politics changing. Because politics change at grassroots radical groups just as much as they do at well institutionalized groups. And I have learned this the hard way because I was the founder of several now well-established uh, grassroots feminist organizations in the late 60s and the early 70s. And in recent years, these two of these organizations have been t putting the founders' names back on all their stationery and, uh, mm. and their newsletters and then taking them off again because one of the trustees now doesn't like one of the founders. So. <laughs> Uh, there's maybe someone will decide uh, years later she doesn't like the leather girls and they're going to mm -hmm. take all their archives out and hide them in some closed area because it's an embarrassment to the library. You, so you, you can't really make that promise, I would suggest. It would be nice to think it were true, but it's, it might be romantic fantasy. Now my question is... <laughs> um, Just let me say, I hope that's my legacy, <laughs> that it will last I mean that, anyway, but. While you're there, you're a very saintly person, while uh, you're there. <laughs> we have younger generations of. <laughs> okay. But anyway, go ahead, I'm not okay. a saint, believe I, I me. Hope. <laughs> I hope, Anyway, okay. go ahead, but your point is well taken. You can't assure, and this is true for Yale, it's true for CUNY, it's, you can't, I mean, we don't know, you know, we, uh, what the world will be. It's just, but I'm saying there are risks on all sides and I'm just pushing, instead of re-empowering those who are the commodities of memory, those who hold, memory. I'm just saying think of other places. Go ahead. History always sort of has the last laugh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> um, my question has to do with dealing with a uh, library that has my papers. Um, at the time, is it all right for me to say what library it is or isn't it relevant or doesn't it or, no, or shouldn't I? Or it, it's the Women's History Library at Radcliffe, the Schlesinger Library. I signed an agreement with them in 1980 and at the time my agent felt I should make it a permanent loan instead of a gift because of the whole uh, business with the evaluation of papers. And he thought it would be better for my children to be able to take off what the value is at the time that I die so that my children are going to have instructions to um, just give it to them at whatever the value would be at the time. But I have no idea how the value at the time would be gotten in a way that would be 
uh, more fair to my children than, well, it wouldn't cost the library anything anyway. It's just the tax, it's just like a tax credit for them to take against whatever estate they might get from me. That's one question. The second question is, I was very pissed recently when I went up there to do some research in my own papers. And even though I was just looking at my own papers, they treated me with the same, the same way the Library of Congress does. I had to check everything. I couldn't bring my purse. I, <laughs> I had to use their special paper to take notes on. And I said, this is not right. It made me wonder uh, how much I want to continue to give them in my lifetime if it's going to be that complicated for me to get access to my own work. And I wondered what the law is on this, and is there some special way that a person should, couldn't ask to have a little more privacy uh, or be trusted a little more in going through her own papers. And my third question is that um, I, they, they want every scrap of paper that I've ever written on the subject of women's health care uh, and other political issues in the women's movement. But I did a biography of a popular culture figure, and they hardly want any papers from that at all. And I found that when I was moving under some duress, I threw away some probably uh, pretty valuable papers that a popular culture library would have um, probably appreciated. Uh, the, the person that I wrote the biography of is Jacqueline Suzanne, and I had a lot of very you know, her, even her letters and things that I just kind of rat. I was very surprised that the Schlesinger Library really didn't want them. So my question here is, um, actually, I should have given them to you. <laughs> but anyhow. <laughs> anyhow. Sit on that for a while. Well, <laughs> well, if I can, if I, when I write up what I have left, maybe I will. Anyhow, um, my question is, what do you think about dividing uh, it seems to me that maybe I should hold on to what I, I still have it for stuff and, and tell Schlesinger, listen, you have all these shelf space of my things and don't, you know, I, I don't, I can't really uh, uh, think much of our agreement if you're not going to also take uh, the material from the book I wrote that you didn't consider in the purview. So George, has this come up for, for you? When, when or should I give it to someone else? Or what are, because I'd like to keep everything together. Of course, from the questions people have been asking, everybody wants to keep all their stuff together if they can. Thank you. I'm sorry it was so complicated. <laughs> but I really would you, be very grateful yes, for any advice. Uh, let, me, let me go, uh, let me first talk about uh, keeping papers together. I'm a firm believer in keeping papers together. I think that all part of a, if an, if, if an institution is interested in one part of the papers, uh, if, they've if they've agreed to accept these papers in their entirety, they should take everything. I'm a little surprised that uh, Schlesinger wouldn't have accepted papers on Jacqueline Suzanne, since I think she is an interesting part of uh, American popular culture and a kind of a pioneer in that kind of romance novel for whatever, whatever it is. And I, I'm, I'm some, well, somewhat surprised about that. Yeah. I think that perhaps um, you should discuss that with the Schlesinger uh, and why they don't. As far as having privacy with your own papers and the way they handle them, that really depends on the institution. Again, I'm a little bit surprised. Generally, institutions are very nice and very kindly to those who give them papers. Um, they do insist, and they always do insist, on certain conservation methods while papers are being handled. There are institutions, for example, that uh, require, when dealing with very expensive manuscripts like Mozart, you know, Mozart symphonies, that the uh, scholar examining these original manuscripts, manuscripts wear white gloves. 
So it, it, it is not unusual that very particular uh, uh, rules are followed. For example, in, in most research libraries, you're not supposed to use pens. They'll give you pencils because you don't want ink blots on valuable papers. Uh, they'll be very careful about how they're handled, you have, how they're checked in and how they're checked out, where you use them, how you use them. So that's not too surprising. They were just following the rules. However, where an author is, is examining their own papers, you would think they would be a little bit more pliant. This right. I understand that they were just, you know, unfortunately librarians feel they have to follow the rules, you know, because they, these are, they have librarians looking over their shoulders and other librarians looking over their shoulders that are looking over their shoulders. So they just followed the rules. They were, they were good drill sergeants and very bad generals, let me put it that way. Well, and, and I'd love to have a graduate student to look after me. <laughs> that part sounds great. I'm sure you would. <laughs> <laughs> Even just my papers. Um, we have other questions. Um, yeah, the, the man right here. I'm in the process of, uh, of uh, reviving a magazine that I published in the 60s. And in contacting uh, the former contributors, I've uh, uh, found a lot of people that have um, archives that you're talking about uh, of my generation. Um, and uh, I'm publishing the magazine on internet in, in electronic digital form. And my question, I guess, is directed primarily at Mr. Menkoff. If, if and in the process of looking at internet, which uh, there, there are a lot of archives starting up on internet. People are uh, capturing material um, and and uh, creating uh, collections and archives of, of original material that is, is being put up and anything that's up on the net basically is open and available for people to copy and, and take and do with what they want. So that's one question is uh, uh, what, what do you see going on there <laughs> and what impact is it having on library collections and special collections and that sort of thing. The other side of it is that a lot of people are encouraging me uh, to, uh, to re reissue, reprint, republish or originally print in electronic form uh, on diskette or online or on a bulletin board system materials. And uh, my, my, uh, that once again that question is uh, what, what impact is that going to have on the value, collectability or uh, uh, the preservation of, uh, of an author's work. What form, in, in, in fact, are libraries looking for? Uh, the digitization and, and scanning in of materials is proceeding as we know it at Rayton. What's your experience been with that sort of thing? I guess the question is that it's, uh, the, the issue is really in flux. Certainly, you know, um, when bibliographers use a kind of terminology, they talk about octavos and folios, and really, this was this terminology was de was developed uh, for printing in this 15th, 16th, and 17th, 18th century. It has almost no relevance except for size of of a, of a volume in the 20th century. So I get so I guess what I would I'd have to say is that we ha that librarians, archivists, uh, rare book dealers, etc., really haven't come to terms with this yet, other than to say that writers that I know that used to be very happy to write pen on paper as the monks are now happily using uh, you know, word, word processors. 
So certainly a lot is going to be lost. Whether libraries will be interested in collecting this at some point is, is something of an open question. I suspect they will be less interested. It's in the sense if you have a, a floppy disk or you have a disk, it's infinitely copyable. So the material doesn't become unique, it just becomes another form of publishing. So maybe in the future there'll be floppy disk libraries or, uh, or computer tape libraries, like video libraries. Uh, I suspect it will have a very, uh, it will have a negative impact on the value of such papers. But I could be wrong, this is just a guess. And, we, and I must say that I have handled papers where a, a, where a significant portion of it was floppies. And I find myself apologizing, which is never a good sign. <laughs> I just think that's an excellent um, issue you raised because I, in some ways we're all going to be artifacts. I mean, there's the way information is going to be shared, the way documents are going to be shared, and maybe it might be a good thing, maybe the commoditization of memory, which is what keeps ringing in my head as I hear this, might be broken down, though I think this society will find another way to put money values on floppy disks. I mean, it will find a way. But I think that's an excellent point. Um, all, everything that we're all doing is going to be different soon. Uh, lo uh, lawyers love this issue of internet. I have to pipe in here. <laughs> internet is online networks that where you communicate to other, p other computer users through a modem, and there's entire volumes and libraries and bibliographies and a, an incredible volume of information that you can communicate to other people sitting in a terminal all over the world in a very sort of gross general way. It's every library's bibliography on an the internet. Socialism it's, of information. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a, it's, it's an entire world of communication that you access through your computer. Lawyers love internet because it raises all sorts of new legal questions that they can sit in law libraries and ponder at a large billable rate. <laughs> it, it's an amazing, it's, it raises, you know, legal issues that people never even dreamed possible <laughs> and now can argue over in courts and in law review articles. Um, we just, a couple weeks ago, we participated in a program on the issue of, it's called publishing, uh, publishing in an electronic net, publishing in an electronic um, world. It was something called, it was dealing with some of these issues. I was sponsored jointly by ourselves and the National Writers Union and a lot of other organizations. Uh, my only sort of uh, general, very uh, broad comment is if you're interested in doing things on internet, I suggest you learn about legal issues relating to electronic publishing because it raises a lot of issues that uh, traditional contracts and traditional copyright arrangements do not anticipate. So you really should research that aspect of it and or have an attorney who works with you to research the aspects of it because most tr traditional publishing contracts don't anticipate internet uses and online ser online services. That's changing though. We you know I've, I've spent about eight hours in my office, uh, very, at my job in the last week going over our new contract which counts electronic rights and it's something that we are at Random House really determined to get into and are seeing them as a real commodity, both as the actual disk, which counts as a manuscript, and, uh, and exploiting those rights, which can certainly mean that you know, a work is 
It's infinitely publishable and, and not very special in a sense. And, and we sit on the other end of those. That's what we're trying to advise artists to, uh, to uh, not allow you to exploit those works as widely as possible at random house. Simply. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we have to get electronic book rights now. I'm not allowed to do, to, to do a contract without getting those rights. But, but the problem with that is that you don't know what those book rights are when you say electronic exactly. book rights because so we're the technology make sure that we, is changing so much right. that the writer really doesn't know what they're want. giving up. I think we're getting off here on the subject though because this, this is stuff about living. And uh, uh, one way or another. Do we have other questions? Yes. Uh, going back to pen and ink scribbling, I have a question about diaries. Um, all my life, I've kept really extensive diaries that could be potentially embarrassing to me, my family, most of my friends, people I've written mean things about. And I do have um, an archive that takes my, my novels and other materials. And what I'd like to know is, it, when I die, I guess I would, instead of burning the diaries, I'd, I'd like to have them available if for grad students or something, but I guess this is something I wouldn't want a lot of um, people I know to read, and is, is what, one, what do I do about it, and two, is that something I have to talk over with the archives or with my executor? Uh, that's a very common issue that's raised, and, it's, and any uh, archive, any university archive, is certainly well disposed to put material away for whatever, uh, for whatever reasons and, for, and under whatever terms you decide. You can put them away until after your death. You can put them away uh, where only people who you want to see them can see them, and uh, it's really very easily solvable. They are so crucial, not just for graduate students, for novelists, for poets, for playwrights who want to get a taste of a time. I mean, those diaries are the most essential things. And the most embarrassing. <laughs> well, that's why they're the most essential. I mean, they're the grit, you know, they're how we made our days. So whatever you do, um, I'm thinking, you know, remember the Lorena Hickok and Eleanor Roosevelt? Those papers, they're always, sometimes at the archives, we have coded manuscripts, coded, coded diaries, where names, original names, um, there's a code made, let's say we'll block out the name, but we have a master list of what the names were and just leave an initial. I mean, and all this can be worked out with the donor. So, but my basic message is don't throw anything away, which uh, is hard to do, but. Do we have other questions or comments at this hour? Yes, we have one down front. <coughs> Introduce yourself, because I think it's important. Um, my name is Lucinda, and I work with the Lesbian History Archives, and I have a legal question. Um, this has happened a few times, and I'm just curious. Um, a, a woman, they, you know, there's people have been lovers for years. Uh, one woman dies, and she leaves all her papers to her lover, but not legally, nothing's in writing. Years go by, and then the lover gives us the whole collection of her lover that's, that's dead. So then we have this, this wonderful collection that basically we don't know who has the copyright to. Well, we're now in the process of going back and trying to get straight some of these copyright issues. Who would we, I mean, would we go back to the lover and say, could she actually legally sign over anything to us? Is there anything like a common law, like if they've been lovers for 20 years? <laughs> I mean, her family may not, we don't even, may not even know who they are. They may be in 
Kentucky somewhere? I mean, how, I mean, legally, what, where are we on that? Yeah. Any ideas? There's really not an easy answer to it, and un unfortunately, <coughs> the way the law really would work, technically, would be that the copyrights would be owned by the next of kin in that situation where there is no will. And it's an unfortunate situation and also a difficult situation to deal with just in trying to find these people. <coughs> and find. What if there was this material was not really copyrighted? Diaries are not usually copyrighted. I don't know if that's But still, you own, whoever wrote something owns the copyright, whether it's a letter or a memo or whatever. Yeah, copyright begins from the moment you put pen to paper, copyright protection for works created after January 1st, 1978. The only other point is that, the, is that this becomes an issue when there's a commercial value, is what we see, and that often there's really, everyone gets along and there's really no problem until there's a commercial value. But because there may be a commercial value is why we have this program here today, is that, that you can't anticipate every circumstance. Paintings? And paintings. And that's 1978. What about the works that came before 1978? <coughs> it's a little trickier. There were certain uh, requirements that needed to be fulfilled, and if you didn't take care of those requirements, you may have lost your copyright protection in the work. Really? need to sit down with an attorney who's <laughs> very well versed in this area and go over very specific details. L let me just also refer you to uh, volunteer lawyers for the arts, whether you want to call with a question or have a, want to learn a little bit about this area. We have some, we have some publications that we sell uh, at low cost that uh, you can uh, find out more about copyright for writers and for visual artists and uh, some of these different areas that may be of use to you. They may be a little too general for very specific questions in terms of an archive, but in terms of what is copyright, what is copyright protection, what is copyright notice, what is copyright registration, those kinds of things. There are a lot of publications that are available through us that you can get either your question answered or learn a little bit about it moving forward. Okay. Um, okay. Did you, sure, I'm sorry. No. Did you wish to speak? Did you want to say something? Okay. Oh, okay. That's what, my teacher part of me. Anytime a student moves, <laughs> I say. No, um, I just, could I just say something? Sure, sure. I just want to say that, uh, how can I say this? If there isn't monetary value, if, quote, one doesn't have an estate or think in those terms, or one uh, feels there's no monetary value, don't make that, I'm sure, I probably don't have to say this, but don't make that equal to value. Um, and also, young people, I suggest start giving your things to archives because what happens then is you set up a whole following. You also have, have a place to um, sort of put your journey in, but I won't want to talk about the users of archives, particularly community archives. I want to stress that. They're not used just by graduate <laughs> students, by select. They're used by workers and mothers and family. I mean, there, there's a whole living way this society can interact 
with the, with the living work of living writers and artists and those who aren't. It doesn't have to be the traditional ways that we've had. And we're so, you know, in postmodernism, we're rethinking so many things. I think this is another thing to rethink. It's a cultural center, and usually there's no charge to use it. I think I think it's a wonderful note to end on. I would simply like add a little note to it. Um, Walt Whitman hung out about a couple blocks south of here at a place called Pfaff's, P-F-F-A-F-F -F -F or something, and uh, which was a, a German sort of bar and tavern, and I'm sure he had wild times there. And I sort of think of him and think of all the people he hung out with and think about how much we've sort of lost, you know, of our previous uh, history. But Whitman wrote about New York, and he wrote about people in Crossing Brooklyn Ferry and said things like, he addresses it to the reader and says at one point, I have considered long and seriously of you before you were born, which I find one of the most comforting lines in literature. And the more I think we leave behind, the more value we, we have over time and over our lifetimes. And I think we have to recognize too, and I think this is something America has trouble with, is that we do not have value simply as individuals within our own lifetime, but as historical and cultural entities who exist as part of the mass, just as all those people did who hung out around Whitman, and, but never wrote Song of Myself, men and women both, of all classes and of all races, even at that time. And the, whatever we leave behind, even if we're not, you know, um, highly fabulously accomplished writers or artists, is still a part of the mass and a part of the whole. And that is certainly something that we can take comfort in and prepare for, which I think is what we're doing tonight. Um, I'm sure all of us are willing to talk to you all after this, and thank you all for coming and staying and asking smart questions. And thanks for the panelists.